So what is synthetic biology? What the scientists do is take those four basic building blocks, they're just chemicals, here they are, the real thing, mix them up to create their own version of synthetic man-made DNA. The final stage is the most extraordinary. They take a cell with all of its own original DNA stripped out and insert the synthetic DNA, getting the organism to do whatever they want, taking control of nature. Ultimately, I think we'll have hundreds of thousands of cell programmers, or you know, millions someday, just like we have millions of computer programmers. You know, if you're a young person, you could say, hey, maybe I could be a cell programmer someday. The reason we bring up Jurassic Park is because, oh my goodness, life will find a way. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you're listening to I Am Bio. You've heard of 3D printing, right? It's the ability to create physical, three-dimensional objects through a special kind of printing by layering materials like plastics and composites. Now imagine if you could 3D print life by shooting precise chemicals on a glass slide like an inkjet. Welcome to the world of synthetic biology, microbe manufacturing and custom designing cells. It's no longer the stuff of Jurassic Park and childhood fantasies. 3D printing of actual DNA has become science nonfiction. One biotech company has a quarter of the global market. Don't worry, they aren't bringing T-Rex back to life, but synthetic bio is being used to make COVID vaccines faster than ever before. It's being used to help crops produce their own nitrogen fertilizer, essential to photosynthesis and growth. And one day soon, it could be used to discover dozens, even hundreds of classes of new antibiotics. And listen to the end of the podcast for an I Am Bio scoop about SenBio and bioremediation. How did the future of science become so present? When the human genome was mapped in 2003, scientists basically unlocked the secret code of life. A decade later, as CRISPR became an easy-to-use, cut-and-paste tool for genes, scientists gained the ability to edit that code. Now, with synthetic biology, scientists can print new DNA letters and program living cells to help solve some of the most vexing problems on the planet. Whether it's stopping a pandemic in its tracks or saving the Earth from the excesses of man. As we kick off BioImpact Digital, our industry's premier agriculture and environment conference this morning at bio.org, get ready to meet Jason Kelly. He is CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks out of Boston. His company has been called the first SynBio unicorn. If you haven't heard about what they're up to yet, it's high time you do, because Jason and his MIT colleagues are about to change the world. Jason is one of our featured speakers at the BioImpact Digital Conference, which kicks off today, featuring some of the world's top agriculture and environment companies. And we are delighted to have him as our guest on the podcast. Welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks, Michelle. 
Can you start by explaining the difference between genetic engineering and synthetic biology? Yeah, sure. And, and you know, they're, they're sort of on the same spectrum, right? So if you the, the core idea to understand is you can think of DNA like digital code, right? Like it in a computer. It's A, T, Cs, and Gs, not zeros and ones. But you can read it with things like DNA sequencing, and you can write it with things like DNA synthesis. And what genetic engineering is doing is it's, it's letting you write that DNA code uh, and put it into a cell, sort of uh, install it in there, almost like you'd put an app on, on your phone to make it do something new. And, and so genetic engineering really kicked off in 1978 with Genentech with the ability to uh, sort of cut and paste cut a gene out of one organism and paste it into another. Uh, and with synthetic biology, we've advanced that technology, and we're now able to type into a computer ATCGGG, hit print, and actually get exactly the, the piece of DNA we wanted, and then go put that into a cell genome anywhere we like. And so it's really, it's really on the same spectrum, but our, our tools for sort of programming that cell, if you want to think of it that way, have, have advanced dramatically. Hmm. So you were doing SynBio research, creating these genetic letters at MIT right around the time that the current NIH director, Francis Collins, and others mapped the human genome in the early 2000s. How has your field evolved since we've mapped the genome? Oh, it, it, it's, it's almost incomparable, right? So, so, so let, let's take that DNA reading and DNA writing, right? So, so uh, when the Human Genome Project was happening, that first human genome uh, cost, you know, you could estimate, let's, let's say about a hundred million dollars to, to, uh, read that, that DNA code. Today, uh, Lumina sells a machine where you can read a human genome, uh, for less than a thousand dollars, uh, increasingly. And, and then on the writing side, if I go back to when I was in graduate school, I probably, uh, designed about 50,000 letters of DNA and got them printed. Uh, and in a typical month at Ginkgo today, we would print about 50 million, design about 50 million letters of DNA. So just to give you, the, the real increase has been in the, in the scale uh, of these technologies. You are still reading and writing DNA, just like we were doing in, in the early 2000s. But, you know, in the case of, of uh, reading it, it's fallen by nearly a million fold in cost. And in terms of writing it, it's probably more about a, about a thousand to uh, maybe 10,000 fold cost drop. Wow. You know, a growing number of Americans and most of our listeners are aware of CRISPR and gene editing. How do you use that tool and how does it fit into the world of synthetic biology? Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited by, uh, by how, you know, you see CRISPR, it's like in movies and things now. It's really exciting <laughs> to me, you know, as a scientist that, uh, um, uh, and in the biotech field to see that, right? So, so the way to think about it is if you wanted to program a cell, and we can talk about some of the things get go program cells to do. But for example, we have a project with, with Bayer where we program a cell to produce fertilizer. And, and to do that, we need to write about 100,000 letters of DNA code, new code to put into that cell's genome, right? And so we do that. We are, our organism designers, they work and they figure out what DNA to write. They hit print and we get that piece of DNA made and it's in a, it's in a tube. Well, the next step is it has to actually get into a living cell. You got to kind of install it, right? And so what we do is we open the genome, right? And, and a bacteria would have something like a 3 million letter genome. And we open that genome in a certain location and we in, in, insert those 100,000 base pairs we want. And what CRISPR does is it allows you to select a location on the genome to cut it and open it. And so it's this sort of like, uh, it's sort of like a find and insert. And 
why, why it's so exciting. We've had those tools in bacteria since, you know, the mid eighties to do that sort of targeted insertion. But for plants and higher uh, organisms, you know, like animals and humans, it's embarrassing how bad the tools were for choosing where to put that DNA in. So if you were engineering plants, you literally used a tool called a gene gun. You you labeled little gold nanoparticles with DNA and you ballistically shot them through the cell wall <laughs> into the genome and it would just hit the genome somewhere at random and stick. And, and sometimes some vanishingly small number of times the DNA would stick. It would be like installing, uh, you know, an app on your phone and it would just insert itself randomly into the computer's memory. It would break all sorts <laughs> of things. And, and that's what, you know, it would do. It would break all sorts of things in the plant. With CRISPR, you get to pick exactly where you want to put it in. And so that allows you to do the uh, engineering much more efficiently uh, and much more predictably. <laughs> I've heard you talk about manufacturing microbes and printing DNA, and it almost invokes an image of 3D printing. Can you talk about what it means to print DNA? What's that even look like in the lab? Yeah, you know, what, what's crazy is the, the technology, like the best technology in this area uh, uses essentially um, essentially microarray. Uh, if you're familiar with the biotech field, this came out of microarrays. But if you go back, it really originated at companies like Agilent, which were a spin out of Hewlett Packard. And what they use is inkjet printing technology. So it actually is it is a variant of printing. And now it's very different. You know, it's not it's not like putting ink on a page, but but the the sort of being able to spot little bits of, of chemicals onto a glass slide is a core technology in DNA printing. And, and what these machines do is they have the A, T, C's, and G's, which are these four different chemicals. They're available in the machine. And then it is going to shoot them down like little inkjet printing into spots on that glass slide. And then you do a lot of complicated biochemistry to stitch little fragments, you know, call it somewhere between 50 and a, a 150 letters of DNA. You stitch those fragments into bigger pieces. So a, a normal gene would be you know, a thousand to three thousand letters long, and so you, so you do actually do a little a little printing at the beginning. Um, that, that's almost like an inkjet printer. So we're starting to hear a lot more about SendBio in the context of COVID. It's said to be one of the great enablers of this remarkable speed and scale we're hearing so much about. Moderna was the first to the clinic with its vaccine candidate two months after NIH released the coronavirus genetic code, making their vaccine without ever studying the actual live virus under a microscope. How is synthetic biology changing vaccinology? Oh, yeah. This, I mean, the, the Moderna story is amazing, right? It, you know, if you, if you think about how this is a new type of vaccine where what you're actually doing is you're, you're providing, in their case, RNA, but there's other uh, similar ones that are DNA based, but you're providing genetic code directly to the patient's cells who will then read that code and, and put out the, you know, the proteins that trigger your immune system. And, and so it, it is, you know, that vaccine is synthetic biology. You're actually using the, the patient's uh, own cells to actually produce that response, and it's genetically encoded. And what's exciting about it is exactly what you said. It's much faster than the traditional way to make vaccines, which is why in the context of this pandemic, it's been uh, such a focus is because speed matters so much here, given given the impact. And, you know, Ginkgo's, we've been really fortunate to, to work with Moderna. Um, we announced a partnership with them about uh, – you know, three and a half, four months ago now, uh, to, to work on optimizing their manufacturing process uh, for that nucleic acid vaccine. So you're also seeing companies like Ginkgo, which are really general purpose platform companies, right? So what, you know, we, we work 
across a range of different markets. Back in March, we said, if you're working on a therapeutic or vaccine, we're happy to, uh, for COVID, we're happy to open up our platform to you. Uh, and, that, and that's where the work started with Moderna. So, so you can actually help both for the manufacturing with synthetic biology and the vaccine itself, uh, in this case, is a synthetic biology product. So you're also working on COVID testing, are you not? You entered an NIH Shark Tank type competition against more than 100 competitors. And of course, you guys were the ones who won. How does your COVID test work? And why is it better than your competitors if our goal is to get America back to work safely as fast as possible? Yeah. So, so Ginkgo's strength, this is a really exciting project. And, and again, the, the way to get this in your head, because one of the things you'll, you'll see as we talk about all the things we're doing is, is Ginkgo's involved in this really wide range of things. Uh, and, and it's a bit confusing. You're like, well, is, you know, you're working in agriculture, you have a deal with Roche and antibiotics, you're doing, uh, you know, working cannabis, it's all over the place. And, and the reason is Ginkgo in all these cases, we're, we're using our automated lab infrastructure to do the biotech work at large scale. Like we mentioned DNA printing, we're about 25% of worldwide DNA printing is designed by us, right? So, so we're doing just big scale lab, uh, infrastructure. And, and one of the things we were able to repurpose it for is, is for COVID testing. And so, uh, our, our test is based on genome sequencing on reading DNA. That was the, the test with, um, uh, that we received the um, NIH Radix award for. And uh, and essentially what we're trying to do is just bring the cost down and get the scale up. It's, it's as simple as that. Uh, and we're actually already out on the market. We have a brand called Concentric. And our, and our focus is working with uh, workplaces and schools uh, and other places that want to return to work, return to school and open up. And that that's a What's really interesting is it's totally different than clinical diagnostics, right? Clinical diagnostics, you're going into a doctor and you need to, you know, get a test to, to find out, you know, uh, whether you have a disease or not. It's expensive. It's low throughput. I mean, to open up, you know, school safely, you're seeing this. The, the colleges that are doing well are testing all their students and staff twice a week. I mean, these, this is the number of tests you need. There's 20 million people associated with the college system. Uh, you know, the nor- orders of magnitude more tests you need for reopening. And so our focus has really been get that cost down low so that you could use it for folks that want to reopen their offices or reopen their schools. Uh, and that, that, that's really where it's uh, the major way where it's different. It's just lower cost and higher scale. Very exciting. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a bit about antimicrobial resistance. So AMR is killing up to 160,000 Americans a year. We did an episode about it on the podcast called The Other Pandemic. What does your technology have to offer in the antibiotic space? Yeah, so we have a, a really, so there, we acquired a company uh, called Warp Drive Bio about a year and a half ago. It was uh, initially been incubated at uh, Third Rock Ventures. Um, and what, what they had done was uh, partnered with a, a few pharma companies, uh, Sanofi and then Roche, to try to discover new antibiotics. And the technology to do that was to basically look in the genomes of bacteria to try to find those new new antibiotics. And and the way to understand this is you go all the way back to like the original, you know, like you remember the discovery of penicillin? It was like there was a plate of mold and, and something flew in <laughs> through the window and you saw this spot, right? And what, and what they found, what, what happened was, you know, bacteria they're 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 off out in the world fighting with each other, right? Like they develop these antibiotics essentially as like little weapons with each other, and and so they're some of the best developers of antibiotics. Is actually biology, and so you know the pharmaceutical companies realized this, went out and screened these soil microbes. They had these giant microbial collections. They looked in the lab. They found all of our current modern antibiotics. But you know, since I think 
like the mid eighties, there hasn't been a new class of antibiotic discovered. And the, the idea was we, we mined them all. We found them all. And, and that's not, turns out that's not true. Uh, because if you think about it, when you test that bacteria in the lab to see if it makes an antibiotic, number one, it's got to grow in the lab and tons of bacteria don't grow in the lab. And number two, it's got to decide to turn on that antibiotic, right? Like, you know, back, back, you know, cells don't turn all their genes on all the time. They may only put that antibiotic on if they're around some other thing they don't like. Right. And so, so what it turned out was if you actually read the genomes of all those bacteria in those big collections, you can then computationally look at the code and say, hey, that might be an antibiotic. And then you go print it and try it out and see if it is. And so it's a totally new way to discover antibiotics. And so we, we have a um, uh, about $120 million partnership with Roche to uh, try to discover those new antibiotics and the uh, new antibiotic classes via that technology. As an immunologist, you're actually like giving me chills. I know your company's called Ginkgo, but it almost sounds like it should be called Panacea because you have like so much to offer to so many different areas. It's it's just really exciting. Yeah, so, you know, the thing I'll say is it, it's kind of like think of it like a like a data center at Amazon or something, right? You know, like like our customers are leveraging our infrastructure. You know, some you know sometimes Ginkgo scientists, but also the scientists at our pharma partners are able to leverage our infrastructure. So, so we're, we're piggybacking on our partners, you know, as well. Right. So it's not like I have to discover everything. What I'm doing is I'm giving, giving these partners horsepower in the lab. So instead of their scientists being able to try 30 designs, they can try 30,000 genetic designs and, and that gets them excited. And then they do discover uh, new and better uh, uh, products and solutions in these spaces. So we're very excited to have you at BioImpact, and we're kicking off BioImpact today, which showcases many of the world's leading agriculture and environmental biotech companies. You're one of our featured speakers. Can you give us a sneak peek or the two-minute version of what you plan to discuss with your colleagues in this space? Yeah, I'm excited about it. You know, I, I think one of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about was, you know, I think with with COVID-19, we're going through this like very like wrenching experience, right? Like everyone's having to figure out how do we work at all? You know, I'm calling in from, from home today. You know, uh, we, we had to set up, I think go, you know, once a week testing to bring everyone back. Actually, a lot of our customers today are pharmaceutical companies, like folks on the phone uh, today would have. Like, I'm sure everyone's had to come up with a COVID plan. How am I going to test people? Who's going to stay home? Who's not? It's this huge disruptive event in our lives. Then that's before you get to, you know, I have a couple kids and figuring out what's going on with schooling. All, you know, it's just a big change. And I think, you know, everyone's sort of like, when do we get back to normal? I, I think that's not quite ambitious enough. Uh, you know, I, I think we should be saying, you know, wh what, where do we want to go? You know, like, like because of this disruption, we actually have a chance to say, hey, you know, like actually the normal was not being ready for this. You know, the normal was not uh, preparing for climate change, which is the next version of COVID, right? Like the normal, the normal was our society not being very equitable. Like, like let's, let's go to someplace new, right? And, and, and that's what gets me excited. I think, I think we have a moment right now globally, right? This thing affects everybody to look and say, hey, after all this turmoil, what do we want the future to look like? And, and that, that, that's what I'd love to talk about because I think, uh, I think biology plays a big role in that because just as we're having that big inflection, the tools for using, as far as I'm concerned, the, you know, the most powerful technology on the planet, which is, you know, the living world, 
are, are, are improving exponentially, right? It's like computers over the last 50 years, like we're just starting that now in, in biology right at this moment when the world is changing. I, you know, I, think, I think we're going to be a big part of it in this industry. So I know you've got a first of its kind project underway with Bayer, um, another bio company that would allow crops like corn, wheat, and rice to produce their own nitrogen fertilizer. How does that work? And what would it mean to farmers and the environment if you succeed? Yeah, this is a cool project. So, so, uh, so I was a, I was a chemical engineer back at MIT um, undergrad. And, uh, and so there's this process in chemical engineering. It's called Haberbosch, which is how we make all of the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer in the world. And basically, the atmosphere is about 70% nitrogen gas. You pull air through a big chemical plant, huge, right? And, and you burn natural gas, about 4% of global natural gas. And you combine that nitrogen with the hydrogen and you make ammonia, right? And you, you put it in big bags, about $80 billion a year of it, and you ship it off to farmers, right? They put it on the field. Half goes to the, the crop, half goes in the river, right? You get a a global environmental issue with greenhouse gas, you get a local environmental issue with, with runoff, but we all get to eat, you know, right? Like we need, we need synthetic fertilizer, right? Uh, and, and so, so, but, but this, and it's probably like the pride of chemical engineering, right? It's like amazing. And, and the issue uh, is there are certain crops like soybeans uh, that you don't really need to use much fertilizer with. And, and the reason is they have microbes in their roots running Haberbosch. They're pulling nitrogen out of the air and they're fertilizing that crop for free, right? If you, if you might remember uh, crop rotation in, in like uh, high school or whatever, like learning about that, that, that's what crop rotation is. You rotate through these crops that fertilize the, the soil and then you plant things like corn, wheat and rice that don't have these microbes that just suck, for, suck the nitrogen out of the soil. And so what we're doing with Bayer is we're saying, let's read the code of the microbes that live on the soybeans. Find the code that, that says, here's how you make fertilizer redesign it, hit print, install it into those microbes that live on corn or wheat, and then apply it as a seed treatment so that eventually those crops could self-fertilize. And that, that's the project. And then it, it would be a, a product in the, in the uh, seed treatment market, and the idea would be to reduce the fertilizer usage for farmers. Amazing. So you've been called, or your company's been called, the first Synbio unicorn. You make a lot of disruptors list. I think we have a sense about what's so disruptive about your technology, but how are you being received? What's your impact been on the status quo of biotechnology? What people get excited about with us is the, is the breadth of applications as the cost to do this work falls. Uh, you know, I think, I think it gets people's interest to see that it can end up, you know, we have a, a company called Motif Foodworks at the spin out of Ginkgo with, that raised over $100 million doing things like animal free meat, like so milk without cows, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, we have a big project in cannabis. We have, uh, work, the work with bear and agriculture that get, getting this idea out to folks that biology can touch so many parts of their lives and we are going to program it like we can program computers to make it do new things. And ultimately, I think we'll have hundreds of thousands of cell programmers or you know, millions someday, just like we have millions of computer programmers. And, and that's an idea that I think gets people excited. You know, if you're a young person, you could say, hey, maybe I could be a cell programmer someday. Maybe I'll be a genetic engineer, you know, right? Um, you know, if you're an older person, you're going to see products uh, in your life that, that uh, are going to change it uh, based on this technology. So I, I think it's something that just gets people excited uh, as they think about the implications. So talking about inspiring the youth, I hear that you were inspired by the Jurassic Park films. How old were you when you saw the original and what was your takeaway as a budding scientist? 
Yeah, I was in my I was in my early I was probably like I don't know, must have been twelve or thirteen. The, the uh uh you know, Jurassic Park, so at that time just wonder, right? You know, wonder at uh sort of the power of biology and these new tools of genetic engineering, right? Like it was just you know, I just like honestly, when I got to MIT when I was eighteen, I knew I wanted to be a genetic engineer. And so I'm pretty sure it was it was like you draw a straight line from Jurassic Park to, to that first day at school. <laughs> But, you know, as I've gotten older and, and, and been involved with synthetic biology all these years, I, I, I really, you know, we bring up Jurassic Park all the time at Ginkgo and people are like, why do you bring that movie up? Like, isn't it, isn't it bad? Like the dinosaurs killed everybody, you know, right? It's a cautionary tale. And, and I'm like, and, and, you know, this, there's this thing, this saying like life will find a way in that movie. Right. And, and, and I'm like, the reason we bring up Jurassic Park is because, oh my goodness, life will find a way. Right. You know, like, Biology is powerful. Look at us right now, right? We're, we're trapped in our houses by biology right now, right? And, and it is not at the end of the day computers, right? It is not a thing that is like a giant clock that you can program and control that way. It is programmable. In other words, you can install new code, but, but it is not c- controllable in the same way a computer is. And so the way we approach it needs to be different. Right. And, and, you know, we need to, we need to treat it with respect. We need to care how, how our technologies are going to be used. And, and, and Jurassic Park to me helps give, gives, helps give scientists that humility that we should have as we work with this powerful technology. So, you know, the other thing we have to always make sure we're aware of is, is the fear and how much of the public's fear of genetic engineering and synthetic biology comes from that sort of introduction in movies like the killer velociraptors and the man-made plagues. You know, how much of the modern horror story narrative is something we need to address in science? You know, it's interesting, right? I, I, like I said, you know, I think it, it Biology is powerful stuff, right? I, and I, so I don't think that's like an unfounded view, right? I mean, like, again, I, I always felt like people didn't think it was. I was like, man, look at, you plant a seed, you add air, water, and sunlight, and you, it self-assembles solar panels. Like, it's just amazing. If you ever, if, you, if Apple had just shown up with the seed and was like, check this out, I just, I just invented this, we'd all be like, what is this alien technology, right? You know, like, like if you just think of it on a technology basis, it's incredible, right? And, and so I was like, I was, I've always felt like biology is so powerful. People don't get it. Well, you know, in the context of, you know, SARS-CoV-2 in the, in the pandemic, people get it all of a sudden, right? You know, like, like and, and so, so I do think that, that people are going to be concerned and, and fearful about this. You know, I, I, my, my view, though, is it's important for those of us developing the technology, particularly folks developing large platforms like Ginkgo is, to care how our platforms are going to be used out in the world. Right. And you and I think you've seen this um, uh, like with the big tech companies today trying to grapple with, you know, Facebook and Twitter. They have these huge platforms that are so influential and they're and they're starting to figure out, hey, I need to be a little worried about what happens on my platform. I can't just be out there letting it you know go willy nilly. And, and so I think we have that responsibility in spades, but we also can do so much good with these with these technologies. So I'll give you an example. I, you know, I believe through things like large scale testing, like like we're working on and also some of these uh, newer vaccines and antibiotics, you know, in the context of COVID, we have a global scale need to to really build out the muscle of controlling infectious disease. And and frankly, you know, this is a thing that we we should have probably been doing in, in, in a in substantial way over the last 50 years. But with COVID, I think we have a shot. We could end it. Right. We could invest in the technologies to end infectious disease. And, and that will be driven by 
synthetic biology. And if you do that, it's like a global immune system. Well, then it makes people a lot more comfortable to be out there, you know, engineering all these new things in the living world. If we know that we've also built up a great immune system so that we're not letting, you know, viruses just kind of install themselves into us all the time, you know, like, like, why don't we just put a kibosh on that? And so I think that, those, you know, people are going to have to balance that. Yes, it's powerful technology, but wow, you know, we could use it to, to maybe do something like get rid of infectious disease and, and people will weigh that, you know, in the, in the public and they should. What an inspiring vision, like the entire end of infectious disease. It's, it's just incredible, but you make it also seem possible. So I, I love how you frame the responsibility that, that you, your company and your colleagues have. So what's inbounds and what's out of bounds for this technology? You know, as a society, where do we and where should we draw the boundaries of acceptable and unacceptable applications of synthetic biology? I think that will be one of the key questions for society over the next, you know, 30 years, 30, well, really the next 50 years, but starting sooner than people think uh, the, you know, there's no pat answer. Right. You know, I, I think there are, there, we, we, there are some things that are sort of obvious, you know, like, like one of the good things about biology, good quote unquote, uh, is it's been running for the last 4 billion years. You know, nature is a giant genetic engineer, right? You know, evolution is trying out new code all the time on planet Earth, right? And so biology has explored a lot of the bad space. And again, it is infectious disease, right? Like that, that is the territory that we don't need to be in. So that's an easy one. You know, just stay out of there. We, you know, what we want to do is end that stuff and then leave it alone, right? We don't need to be engineering in that space. And the good thing is we know where it is, right? Because biology has already invented a lot of these, uh, a lot of this stuff. Outside of that, it gets a lot more hate. You know, what, you know, what's a project you should do? What's a project you shouldn't do will ultimately be up, you know, to, to people, right? Uh, for people to decide uh, in the future. I think that's, it, it's going to be one of the big questions of our time. Fair enough. Fair enough. So one last question. What's an exciting area of early stage research Ginkgo is exploring that maybe hasn't been as well publicized in the media? We're going to be doing some new uh, work in the area of uh, bioremediation. So, so if you think about what, um, biology is often used for in, in biotech industry. It's like using the power of biology to build new things, right? Like make this drug, right? Make that fertilizer, right? Uh, biology out, out in, in nature also does this other amazing thing, which is it's the world's best recycler, right? It, you know, like biology, everything gets broken down into little pieces and built back up, right? Year ago, the leaves fall off the trees, the fungi eat them. That whole area of using biology to break things down uh, we're we're going to be pursuing a lot more there because we think that's really powerful tech coming up. So you should hear hear from us soon there. Exciting, very exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I know we'll be hearing a lot more from you soon. So thanks again. Thanks, Michelle. Enjoyed it. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice, or even better, if you've learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of the heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. And please don't forget to visit biotechvotes2020 at bio.org backslash votes. Thank you.